Hello and welcome to episode four of Talking Hit with Joel Pamplin. Today I have a very special guest joining me all the way from Canada, the disease modelling world travelling mathematician, Stacey Smith. How are you, Stacey? I'm great. Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate you coming on the show. Um, Now, before we get into anything, the first thing that's going to be on a lot of the listeners' mind is the question mark on the end of Smith. That is your legal name. Uh, yes. So I, I added the question mark when I was like very young uh, because my actually my original name was very boring and also was the same as the uh, lead singer of a fairly famous band. Uh, and that name followed me around for so long. And so I, I added the question mark to kind of spice it up a bit. Um, I later found out that like my, my old name, which was Robert Smith, uh, that was the third most common name in the United States. So that was <laughs> such a common name. Uh, I've since transitioned. So that's maybe a little less common. I, I mean, I, I didn't choose like a crazy wild name like I, yep. I might have. Um, but because I, I actually feel like the question mark does a lot of the work and I, I got emails from people like recently I was at a conference and they said oh my god I, I know who you are because of the question mark like you know I, I met you once like 12 years ago in like the UK like we talked for like 10 minutes at a, at a coffee break but I know who you are and I was like this is amazing it's, it's kind of become my brand I guess yeah I think it definitely has now you've had some trouble with uh, Facebook not accepting the question mark yeah, yeah. Facebook won't accept punctuation. And so then um, well, what I did was I just wrote out the word question mark. Um, and then they had some issues with that as well. And Facebook is really weird on names. And then you can't like talk to a human about things. So yeah, it gets a bit complicated. So you've got a question mark on something like your passport, but you can't get it on Facebook. Yeah, well, the, the problem is it's a wild character. So it it messes up computer systems sometimes. <laughs> some things accepted and some things don't. I was actually once, I was crossing the, the US-Canada border um, and, and I was, was about to go and, and I was at a party and one of my friends came to me and she said, oh, my, my cousin has the same name as you. And he got pulled over because they're pulling over all the Robert Smiths. And and I was like, oh, okay, well, this is going to be a nightmare. So I, I went to the border. They, sure enough, they pulled me up because there was a criminal on the loose with my name. And so they pulled me over and they went, oh, you're the one with the question mark. No problem. Off you go. <laughs> customs agents were perfectly fine with this <laughs> um they would have had a hard hard deal pulling over every robert smith if it's the third most popular name in exactly well it was anyone crossing the border right so yeah yeah there was, there was quite a few of us i guess yeah, they Actually, my, my first year, I, I did my, my undergrad at macquarie uni my first year tutorial there were four robert smiths in the tutorial and so wow. it was just ridiculously common yeah so what did you study I studied mathematics and uh, so I, I did maths for my undergrad and then I moved to, well, I, I kind of did like an honours degree um, at Macquarie and then I moved to Canada for my master's degree and PhD and I still studied maths in both of them, but then I kind of like became more applied. So I, I went from kind of pure maths to kind of more applied maths. Um, and for my PhD, I studied sewage treatment because I was looking at like environmental cleanup. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I, I used to joke that my, th- my thesis was shit because that's what I was studying. <laughs> And then, um, but after that, I switched into diseases. And so now I'm an expert in infectious diseases. I've been studying pandemics and vaccines for over 20 years now. And so this is kind of this quirky thing I used to do. And now everybody has an opinion about it <laughs> for obvious reasons. Yeah. So your your work's become very popular over the last 18 months. Um, I've seen you on some CNN and stuff, interviews. Yeah. That, I mean, I, I did a lot of media about um, like, 10, 15 years ago, uh, because I did a mathematical model of zombies. And that was like a funny, quirky thing. And everybody was like, oh my God, this is hilarious. Let's, let's put you on. So I actually got quite quite used to talking to the media. Um, and then when COVID came along, they said like, we're desperate for experts in like, you know, disease projection models who also can like 
talk to a camera who can also explain it in ways that aren't going to put everyone off. And they basically said, you're the only one we have. Like, <laughs> like, like if you put all those three together, there's, there's no one else. Like, like, you know, there's a lot of very smart people. There's a lot of people who know a lot about diseases, not a lot of people who can actually break it down a bit. And I think that's because, you know, my, my, you know, background, you know, I grew up in Australia, I was very working class. And I feel like I would, you know, try and explain what I was doing to people. And they'd be like, yeah, don't explain it in a nerd way, <laughs> in like a regular way. And so I had to always just kind of be like, oh, how do I actually make this accessible? Um, and at the time it was really, you know, like, oh my God, I can't believe I heard it. Like, you know, explain this like again and again to people like, no, I don't get it, do it again. But it actually, it gave me such a great way of communicating with people that I now really value it. it it became one of the things I really truly like you know pride myself in is kind of this ability to talk to kind of anyone um, and even if I am explaining very complicated concepts and I feel like a lot of my life is complicated concepts that I have to explain <laughs> to people very patiently and very slowly so I'm kind of a born teacher in that way yeah that's quite lucky so saying that you are a teacher as well Yes, yeah, so, so I'm a professor and I do research in infectious diseases using maths, uh, but I also teach university classes. And so I teach, I teach more the fundamentals of maths and um, how sort of you know, differential equations work or calculus and things like that. So I just finished teaching a whole course on, on secondary differential equations for engineers. Um, but yeah, my, my research is much more into the applied stuff. Yeah. Okay. Um, so your, the book that you mentioned on zombies, that did become very popular how did you get into publishing books? Yeah, I, I was always wanted to be a writer. And actually, I was torn between should I be a writer or should I be a mathematician? And I remember having this, this huge grappling with this concept, kind of like, oh, I don't know what I want to do. Um, and as it turned out, I got very lucky and I was able to do both um, because I'm a big Doctor Who fan and always have been. I've been watching Doctor Who since I was five years old. Like my dad was into it when he was younger. And so you know, I just kind of like picked that up and then I really became super, super into it. Um, but a lot of Doctor Who fans like write a lot. And, we, and I was writing like reviews on the internet and stuff, you know, Back, back before, you know, anyone was on the internet, uh, you know, I was, like, you know, reviewing Doctor Who books. It just kind of like, I, I was like, I'm just here for the jokes, right? I'm just being funny because that's what I like to do. But it's like, it's not a skill a lot of people have, I guess. And so people are like, oh my God, your reviews are hilarious. And I was just like, oh, okay, thanks. And, you know, I was just like, I'll just do it because it's fun, you know? And then um, I met a publisher and he was like, oh my God, your stuff is so funny. Like, you know, have you ever thought about writing a book? I was like, oh, I've totally thought about it, but like, I wasn't doing this to kind of get a job or whatever. <laughs> and so he's like, no, no, why don't you do something? And then we ended up like doing books together. And, um, and it kind of like, like the, they would say like, you know, your first book is the hardest one because yep. like no one believes in you and, you know, you don't even believe in yourself. You don't know if you can do this. And then, you know, you spend years and years and years working on this. You write your first one and then everyone wants a piece of you. They're like, oh, great. Can you do four of these a year? And I'm like, <laughs> oh my God. And the answer basically is yes. I've got like more than 20 books now. Um, I, I've churned them out in, in a sense. Um, I, I think I'm a, I'm a very fast writer. Um, I, I, I kind of like, I, ha I think I have a, a good combination. I'm, I'm fast and I'm good and I'm careful. And I think the math brain makes me very, very careful as a writer. I'm very, I pay a lot of attention to logic and structure. Um, I also, I'm, I would say I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a decent writer but I'm an excellent editor and so that makes me a great writer because I feel like you know I can write whatever and an excellent editor will come along and fix it it happens to be me wearing a different hat but it's you know that that person is there whereas I think a lot of people are either very good editors or very good writers um it's it's you know unusual to have both so do you edit your own books then Yes, yes. And, oh, wow. and some of the books I do are for quite small publishers, so that they don't have the facility to have professional editors. So I, d I just do it 
Um, and and I, I do a lot of it. And some of the books I do are kind of edited works where I'll get like lots and lots of people to contribute and I kind of oversee it. And I'm kind of like, you know, always, you know, tweaking it and kind of like steering, steering it as well, I guess. Um, and, and I would say like, in some ways, those are much more work than actually just writing the book. Like, you know, yep. sit down yep. and write a book that doesn't take that much work in some sense. It's like coordinating a hundred and something people to write a hundred and something pieces. Um, <laughs> is, is <laughs> That is a big task. It's like hooding cats. Yeah. Yeah. That sounds like it is a big task. Um, so you said you've published about 20 books, one of them being that popular zombie book. How did that zombie book come up, come about? Oh, actually, so the zombies started with the, it was just an academic paper. And so the, the paper was free online. And so, so you know, I just put up my website and it got a lot of attention that way. Um, but because it was free, everybody shared it, everybody talked about it. It was actually the number one news story in the world at the time. It, it was number mm. one on the BBC for 24 hours. And it was, you know, it was a slow news month. I was just like, <laughs> oh my God, I can't believe people are even caring about this in the first place. We won a Guinness World Record for it, which is just amazing uh the give us a guinness world i mean it's a lesser guinness but they give us this guinness world record for the first mathematical model of a zombie invasion and i was like well if it's the first they can't take it away from us no that's just... right that's a record that's always <laughs> going to be yours yeah exactly and i got approached by an agent and then um uh, you know, people coming at my doorstep. Like, like I was like, I'm, I'm just like some rube from the internet. Like I just wrote this funny zombie paper and people are like, oh my God, we want, you know, like, you know, would you be willing to write a book? And I'm like, I've already written three. And they're like, wait, what? And so, you know, I, I wrote zombie books. Uh, so I, I did two of them actually. I did one, one was like the intense math of zombies and one was like the everything else for sort of like more accessible stuff. Yep. Uh, and, and, you know, so I think my, 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 my girlfriend's mother like you know gave her that for Christmas without knowing it was by me and I was just like oh my god that's hilarious you know? <laughs> and so uh, yeah so, so the, the books were quite fun and then I think I just sort of I had all these skills ready to go and then I kind of like you know got a got a quantum like leap up um, in kind of this like zombie fame so that gave me access to a lot of things and then suddenly it was people like oh yeah like you know what else can you do and I was like oh let me write Doctor Who books which I was always doing anyway and you know like fun things like that. Yeah, that's pretty awesome way to get into things that you enjoy already, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's 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 a hobby more than it is work. Yeah, that's quite lucky. <laughs> um, so you're also living with a meat-free diet. Yes, yes. I've been I've been vegetarian since 1992 uh, when I was 19. It was I sort of say it was like the first thing I really did as an adult, and I was kind of like, All right, let me make this you know decision. Um, and my mum was very much like like oh my god like what are we gonna do <laughs> she's like okay well i'm not gonna cook two meals so you, you you're gonna have to learn to cook and i'm like a 19 year old boy at the time going like okay i'll do it and i, I don't think she thought i would see that through i think she thought that would like stop me in my tracks so i'm like no i'm gonna do this uh and so and so you know learned how to cook not very well at the beginning but you know i persevered and then um and i became vegan uh, about 11 years later uh so i was you know uh, vegetarian for a while. I actually, I really loved being vegetarian. I was kind of like, oh, you know, I quite like this. I don't really see the need to be vegan. Um, but I'd say like the reason I went vegetarian was exactly the same reason I went vegan. It was for the challenge. I was like, I don't know if I can do this. I'm going to give it a try. I mean, vegetarian, my friend dared me to do it. Um, and so I was like, right, like, let's do it. He, he lasted like two weeks and I <laughs> lasted like years. Uh, but um, uh, and veganism again, I was like, okay, okay, I'm going to see this. And one of the things I found really fascinating along the way was like, I mean, AI felt better and had more energy and um you know i mean one of the long-term effects so it's now it's been like what almost 20 years since i've been vegan yep. um and and people are always like mistaking me for someone much much younger and and actually i, remember I went to went to a campsite recently and 
and a bunch of us appeared and, and people trying to guess our age. And they said, oh, you, you folks in your like early 30s? And we all kind of laughed. Like, no, 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 we're really not. They're like, oh, late 20s? And we're like, oh my God, you're going the wrong way. Like, <laughs> and, and the guy who's saying this is probably like, he's probably like five years older than me, right? And so he's like, it's not like he's some granddad. He's like my age, basically, but he can't pick my age. And he's sort of going like, oh, and then I, I said like, no, I'll be like, you know, 50 next year. And he's like, what? And he's like, what's your secret? And my, my friend says like, you're not going to like it. <laughs> I said, yeah, but- for 20 years and he's like you're right i don't like that <laughs> it turned out he was like a cowboy <laughs> so I was like, but but it, it wasn't why i did it but it was one of these astonishing things that i found that like um you know me and other long-term vegans that i found we just we don't age and people are like wow you look exactly the same as like 20 years ago and stuff and you know i mean obviously you can see little bits but it's like it's a very slow process um and, and i always say i was a very lazy vegan like i wasn't really into exercise or anything i was just kind of like ah, i just changed my diet and not much else and and it had, it had quite a remarkable effect yeah so you found that you've been healthier and you said more energy as well since you became vegan yeah yeah i, I mean i remember even when i just became vegetarian i suddenly it, it I, I felt very invigorated. Um, I, I think I also cared about food in a way I just never had before. Um, and actually, one of the things I really like about veganism is is actually that challenge. Like, uh, now it's not actually that much of a challenge in the modern world. And if you live in an urban city, it's it's dead easy to do. Like, people think it's going to be really hard. And I've actually like had a lot of like you know girlfriends and people just become vegetarian or something because they're like, oh, oh, I looked at you doing it, and it's so easy. Like, I didn't realize it'd be easy. I'll just I'll just do that. And so they just switch or whatever. And I'm like, yeah, it is actually quite simple these days. Uh, I mean, it's a little, uh, like I won't lie, at the beginning, it's a little bit harder. There's a steep learning curve is you kind of got to reorient your, your habits because you're like, you're just used to kind of buying food at the grocery store and just used to throwing on some standard meals and you take those away. And of course, that's a challenge. So, th- so there is a challenge at the beginning, but it's not nearly as hard as you might think. Uh, but what I also do like about it was um, I was traveling, I, I traveled the world a lot and I was, I was in Japan and I was really worried about, you know, eating vegan. Um, and it, the conference that I was attending, they said, oh, don't worry, we'll, we'll provide this like vegan lunchbox for you. So you'll have at least one meal vegan every day. And I said, oh, that sounds perfect. And I got it the first day and then all my friends are out in the street and they're like negotiating on the street for food, you know, in languages we don't speak and we're miming and doing stuff. And I was like, I want to do this. And so, so I was like, I never got the lunchbox again. I was like, all right, I'm just going to like go out there and try and like figure this out. And I am like trying to mime vegan. Like it's a really <laughs> amazing thing to do. And, and I'm trying things and I'm, you know, a bit into something that, oh, no, that's not vegan. That's totally meat. I just, you know, put it in my mouth, how, how gross for me. And then, I, you know, and finally I found some triangular food. I've no idea what it was called, but it was this triangular thing. And I'm like, and I determined it really was vegan. And I'm like, okay, great. And I, I eat it. And I'm like, this is the sweetest thing I've ever tasted. Like, this is so delicious. Not because it was in inherently good but because i had to really work for it yeah and because having tried all afternoon and i was like oh i finally got food this food tastes so good and it occurred to me that like for most of human history people really had to work for food right you had to like you know raise animals in fields and like you know like you know harvest your crops and people would say prayers and like they really give thanks for their food whereas nowadays we live in this age of abundance and so food is everywhere and if you know if you're hungry and you have no standards and you want to eat you can eat you can just go and find food really quickly really easily you may not find gourmet food but you'll find something yeah exactly just you know Mecca's down the street or whatever right whereas you put a little challenge in here and and honestly it's not even that much of a challenge but you know I put the challenge of being vegan and suddenly I really work for my food and I feel like I'm appreciating it in a way that like you know most people don't I think because we still have that evolutionary drive for hunger I'm like oh my god I'm hungry you know I'm hangry I must eat don't get in my way you know kind of thing like that is all there even though we are not in any kind of starvation mode you know most of us Uh, and and yet you know having a bit of challenge like, okay i'm really really hungry but i'm not going to eat just any old thing so that forces me to actually kind of like really appreciate what i'm having 
Now, it like to, in today's age, it is quite easy, like you said. But when you started being a vegan, it would have been a lot more difficult because um, it it just wouldn't have been as available as it is today. That is very true. Yes, <laughs> and, and the, they did have some things like they had like fake cheese, and oh my god, it was disgusting. <laughs> and so I was like, I'm never eating that. So I just learned to eat pizza without cheese, and I would just you know like I remove cheese from my diet altogether, for instance. And, and you know, I used to have these veggie burgers, or I have like mushroom burgers, like a portobello mushroom, and you put some like you know like grilled onions and some like you know veggies, whatever, and you, you put goat cheese on it. We'd have this at the cottage all the time, um, and I just was like, right, I'm going to do this. I'm not having the goat's cheese, and I was like, oh, this tastes so bland. Like, and I was like, this really tastes boring without. It. and I persevered and what happened actually was my taste buds changed and so now if I eat that same meal I'm like this is delicious this is really great and I, I made it for another vegan and she's like oh my god this is one of the best things that I've ever tasted this is delicious and more recently I had it with with basically the vegan goat's cheese um, which I've been assured tastes very similar to the real thing put it on I was like oh this is just too much like this is like an overabundance of flavor I don't need this cheese it's, it's, it's irrelevant and I think what happens is we kind of get a bit addicted to these like high intensity flavors and you know it's kind of like coffee right if you if you drink your coffee every day and you have a day without coffee, you're really going to feel that, but you don't actually need coffee to survive. Right. It's <laughs> like, you know, if you don't drink coffee ever, which I never do, right. You, you know, you're, you're perfectly fine, but it's like, you get kind of addicted to these things. And I think the same is true of, of meat and of like, you know, like, you know, high, like, you know, intensity stuff, like this cheese and stuff. And people are like, Oh, I love cheese so much. It's like, yeah, it's cause it's somewhat addictive actually. <laughs> it's like, you know, I love cigarettes too. You know, <laughs> it's like, yeah. Yeah, it's definitely true. I was addicted to like Coca-Cola and I stopped it drinking mm. completely. And now I'll drink it and it's just way too much. It's like, oh, that is, it's not nice. Yeah, yeah. I, I was exactly the same. I used to drink like, you know, kind of like a bottle a day, you know, like, yeah. I, I, actually, the funny thing about Coke was I, I, I was kind of thinking I was drinking too much. So I switched from Coke to Diet Coke and I lost 10 kilos in a week. Like it wow. fell off I was like, wait, what the hell? I thought, how much Coke was I drinking? And then, and then I slowly, I didn't like Diet Coke, so I didn't drink it as much. And therefore, you know, I was like, oh, well, now I'm not drinking like all the time. So then I slowly weaned myself off. And yeah, it's true. Now, the only time I'll ever drink a Coke is if I'm like, I have to drive somewhere and I'm super tired and I need something to put, like, you know, wake me up. I remember I had, I had to do a drive unexpectedly and I'd had three hours sleep. So I bought a Coke and all I did was like, I'd sip it. I take the tiniest sip and I'm like, oh my God, I'm awake. Cause I, I don't drink any caffeine anymore. So I'm just like, I'm caffeine free, except for like occasionally I was like, holy crap, that is a buzz. <laughs> it's like, wow. <laughs> and, but when you drink it every day, you're like, you, you don't even notice anymore. No, not at all. Definitely. Um, something you and I have in common is tattoos. Um, when did you start getting tattoos? Yeah, actually, I think you and I got the first tattoos in a pretty similar time because I was, I was pretty late to tattoos. I was I was dating a goth and, and so she was covered in tattoos. And I remember she said to me, like, would you ever get a tattoo? And I'm like, nah, I'd never get one. Like, no. And then she changed her tactic. She said, if you were going to get a tattoo, what would you get? And I was like, oh, oh you know, and hypothetically, I'd get, I don't know, the Mandelbrot set on my back. And she's like, what the hell is that? And I'm like, oh, well, it's this solution of this equation. I was like, you know what? Let me just show you a picture. And I, I showed her the picture. She's like, oh my God, that looks beautiful. And so I was like, holy crap, I'm going to get the Mandelbrot set on my back. I was just like, that's an amazing idea. And so that was my first one. And that was 2015. Um, so I was, I was in my forties at that point. Uh, you know, I was kind of like, Oh, I've got a tattoo of my forties. I remember my friend made fun of me. She's like, anyone who gets their first tattoo after 30, like, Oh my God, it's like, what a, what a loser. And I'm like, Oh yeah, totally. I'm not even after 30. I'm after 40. Like, this is totally hilarious, but I love the nerd tattoo. And, and so most of my tattoos are like, like super nerdy. Um, and, and one of my, one of my girlfriends once, she was like a, like a, a very like devout Christian. Um, and, and she sort of like, I said her once, like, we're just saying, like, oh, what do you like about me? Or what do you like about her? And she said, you know, the thing about you is, like, you look like the bad boy. Like, you're covered in tattoos, so I could never bring you home to my parents. 
but then you're really nice. So I could totally bring you home to my parents. And I'm like, oh my God, I, I can't believe I'm the bad boy because I'm like such a nerd. It's <laughs> <laughs> like, I guess for this, like make a Christian, I was like, oh, I'm the bad boy. Cool. And that tattoo that you mentioned is huge. That is not a small tattoo to start off either. So it was actually a mistake on the day because so so my, my goth girlfriend said like the, the one thing people regret about that tattoo is the most is not getting them big enough. And I thought, okay, okay, good to know. I'll, I'll get it, you know, bigger than I think. And so I, I'd, I'd arranged to get something that was going to sort of like be reasonably large, but not, not super huge. And then there was just a miscommunication. And when they printed out the design of the day, it was enormous. It like filled my back. And I was like, you know what? Let's do it. Let's just go for it. And I was like, because people are going to, I was sort of like, I'm going to regret it if I've now seen the design and then I don't get that one. And so I'm like, right, I'm just doing it. And at the time I actually thought, well, this might be my only tattoo. So why not just go for broke and I'll just get a huge one and it'll be super fun. And actually we did the big reveal to my, my mother because um, I wouldn't let anyone take photos of it. I was like, no photos at all because at Christmas I'm going to go home and I get to do the reveal. I got my sister to like have the camera filming. I had a towel around my shoulders and I took the towel off to go to the, the pool. And then my mother was like, what the hell is on your back? And it was hilarious. <laughs> my brother-in-law was like shaking his head in disgust and you know it was it was very fun and what i've also found maybe you have too they're pretty addictive like very once you get addictive. one you think like oh my god i gotta get more and now i'm fairly covered now and i feel like i'm i'm a big fan of like the the spectacular tattoo so i've, I've got like you know like the first and last page of a book running down my entire right side i've got like you know gigantic ones a lot of you know everywhere that i can fit them and you know really cool nerdy ones i've got like unique tattoos that like no other human has um because i figured out how to solve the, the best ones yeah exactly so yeah so it's, it's pretty fun stuff yeah, and like you said, they are very addictive. Um, you also use vegan ink because you were the person that told me that that existed, that vegan ink exists mm -hmm. for tattoos. Yes, yes. And actually, that was, again, thanks to my goth girlfriend who was vegan as well. Um, and, and actually, it turns out that like most of the black ink tends to be vegan by default. Like if you go to a random tattoo shop, it's probably vegan. Uh, but the colored ink can cannot be. So you have to ask specially. And one of my, my favorite tattoos is I have a world map on my leg where I'm coloring in all the countries I've been to. And so I'm coloring them in with different different colors. And I get these at all kinds of different tattoo places. So, you know, I've got some in Australia, I've got some in France, you know, wherever. And so I have to really tell them, like, can you please make sure the ink is vegan? And occasionally they'll be like, oh, right, not this shade of yellow let me get that shade you know to do this thing so yeah it's, it's pretty neat actually i mean again it shows how easy vegan is these days because mm. pretty much every tattoo shop has vegan ink somewhere even if it's not every single one yeah uh so how many tattoos have you got now well i think i probably got about uh, close to 20 i think distinct tattoos but some of them are, are like, like the world map is like you know i've had that done like many many times because you keep calling yeah. country and I, I got like, um, I got gum trees on my legs to kind of remind me of home. Um, and so those ones were done in like multiple, like there's four different gum trees, but they're, they're quite detailed. So they took a lot of time. Um, and so, so some of them are a bit more you know, intense than others. Um, but yeah, it's sort of, I, I'm starting to run out of space for the big giant ones. Um, yep. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You slowly run out of canvas room. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> well, actually one of the things I did before I started, I mean, because I was in my forties, I was kind of like, let me Google Number one, bad tattoos. And I looked at all the really bad tattoos out there. I was like, oh, wow, there's some really terrible ones. This is hilarious to, to watch. Um, but the number two thing I Googled was old people with tattoos. Because the thing that they always scared us off when I was young was, oh, you don't want to have tattoos mm. when you're old. And then I Googled it. And I was like, these look great. Like, yeah, okay, it's old people. But honestly, old people with tattoos look better than old people without tattoos. Like, this looks fantastic. And so I was like, yeah, I definitely want to be an old person with tattoos. I don't, you know. The saggy mm. skin is going to sag anyway. That's so right. Yeah. What if it's got a design on it? Yeah. And so I was, I was super convinced then. And and actually, the other day I saw someone who was like, you know, ancient grandpa, and he was covered in them. And I was like, oh wow, that actually looks really good in real life too. And so, yeah. 
Yeah, that it. Yeah, hundred percent. And by the time you're that age, I don't think you care what people think of what you look, exactly. what your sa- saggy skin <laughs> looks like. So <laughs> that's right, exactly. So your move to Canada, what what made that happen, and why why did that happen? Yeah, so I I, I moved for university. Uh, I, I'd got my undergraduate and honors degree uh, in Australia, and then I was kind of just like I wasn't really sure what to do, and. And I went to a, a conference in Canberra. It was my, my first conference. And we're standing around. There's a bunch of people. I was like, I don't know. I don't know anything. Like, I'm, I'm just some, like, working class kid who didn't even know what university was when I went. And so I'm trying to fit in with, like, these much more sophisticated people who had, like, professors for parents and so on. And they were all being, oh, Australia, we've got to get out of here. Like, it's a backwater. We must go somewhere more exciting. And I'm like, oh, okay. Uh, is that what we do? We go elsewhere? You know, and I'm just, like, trying to keep up. And they, oh, yes, you've got to get out of here. And and so uh, I was like, oh, okay. And so my, my, my colleague... Uh, I was doing an advanced honors degree. There's only two of us in the program. So he, he was like, oh yes, yes, let's, let's, you know, we should go elsewhere. So I was just like, okay, sure. But he wasn't any good at bureaucracy. So I like figured out what form to get. And I was like, oh, hey buddy, here's a form, you know, and here's this. And so I basically like drove all the like, you know, the extraneous stuff and he just handed me the big ideas. I was like, okay, sure. Let's go overseas. And I was like, I don't really care where, except that it must speak English. And so that narrowed me down a bit, but I was like, I applied to the UK, applied to the US, you know, I applied to a few places and stuff. But also at the time, my, my girlfriend was was from Canada. And so that kind of put the thumb on the scale a little bit about, about going to Canada. Like we actually didn't think we were going to stay together, but then we, we did for a few years afterwards. So we actually managed to make the move together. Um, and, and actually, the funny thing was, though, I ran into that same colleague um, much later because I, I moved to Los Angeles. And by random chance, he lived across the street from me. And we were just like, oh, my God, what are the chances? Like, this is so bizarre. I mean, it's like, actually, we're mathematicians. We can figure out the chances. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> being like, okay, let's let's do this. And um, um, and and he he totally dropped out of math. I mean, he got his PhD. At, he went he went to Oxford and then Harvard. And I'm like, oh, my God, like, I'm just going to go to Little McMaster. But like, <laughs> he's he's having this superstar thing. And then he, and then he hated it. And so he, he dropped out to become a Hollywood film director. And then I tracked down the other person who'd been in that conversation about, like, we have to leave this backwater. And she'd gone overseas. She'd gone to MIT in Boston. And I was like, oh, that's pretty fancy. And then she'd ended up back in Sydney. And I was like, oh, of, of the three of us, I was the only one who ended up having an you know academic career overseas. Like, like I just, just doing it because you told me to and, and you, you got to do it. <laughs> so, yeah, and now one of you is back in Sydney. <laughs> exactly, yeah. <laughs> uh, so are you a dual citizen? Yes, yes. I, I, yeah, I got, that, uh, I got that quite a few years ago, um, but I was living in the US at the time. And so um, I, I basically applied for Canadian citizenship and then probably left the country. So I was like, the worst at every border because I was an Australian citizen, Canadian resident living in the US. And like, what? How do we deal with you? And at one point I, I was coming in into the US from Mexico and, you know, they basically like stamped all the Mexicans through, no problem. But then like you, I was like, why am I being picked on? Like, they're like, you're too hard to handle. Like, we can't figure this out. I finally got Canadian citizenship and, and that was great because what I learned was Australia, Australia basically they won't let you vote if you leave the country I mean now technically if you never miss an election you can keep this record but you've got to keep every election going like every local council election everything um, and if you but if you leave for more than I think six months or something then you lose your voting privileges and, and I didn't realize this and I decided like oh as a federal election coming up I'd like to vote in it and they're like, oh no way you've been away too long so I spent 12 years where I wasn't allowed to vote anywhere I was not eligible to vote and when I finally got Canadian citizenship and I was like oh my god I can vote in an election it was like the biggest thrill it's like the vegan thing right it's like oh my god you put a challenge in the way and suddenly you overcome it and it's it's exciting and whereas normally like oh god, I gotta go vote on a Saturday or whatever it's like no wow like when you take that right away from someone they really appreciate it and yeah. i was like oh my god I, I never miss a vote now and, and it, i mean it's, it's optional in canada but still it's you know yeah still a thrill now because <laughs> you didn't have it for exactly. so long yeah <laughs> 
Uh, so teaching over the past 18 months with the pandemic, you would get quite used to Zoom calls like this one? Yeah, I, I'm, I'm actually, I think, unusual in people I talk to where I love teaching on Zoom. Like a lot of my colleagues are like, oh, I hate it. I miss my students and so on. And I was like, yeah, there's an aspect of the classroom that, that you miss by not being there in person. But there are so many benefits I found, especially for large classes. So my classes are, you know, sometimes 200, 250 people. Oh, my gosh. So enormous. I mean, I mean, an, an advanced math class is like 15 people. Sometimes it's down to three people or whatever. But the first year calculus or second year differential equations that is taught, there's 150 people this past one. There was 200 people the semester before. So so is, is huge numbers of people. So you don't really get to connect to them in the classroom anyway. It's just a sea of faces and, you know, hands go up and you answer questions or whatever. But what I found was that Zoom teaching, I was much more immediate. And I had like my slides and, and my voice and, and sometimes my face happening on the on the main screen. And then I had my phone running with the chat. And so I, I said to the students, there's no way I can even look at all your faces. Don't worry about that. Just talk to me in the chat. And so they were just typing away. And they would type and I would respond verbally and they'd be making jokes and we'd be like riffing off each other. And it was hilarious. And we'd be like having this great like interaction. So I feel like I got to know them really well, much better than I ever do in, in person. And also they would set the pace for me. So, you know, they'd be like, hey, I didn't understand, you know, that the last slide, can you go back? And I'm like, oh, sure, no problem, which I'm always happy to do. But in person, nobody says that. Nobody puts up their hand in front of all their friends and says, I don't know what's going on. Even though in math class, most people do not know what's going on, for sure. <laughs> and, but I, I, it's very hard for me to judge without feedback. And so I'm trying to sort of guess how they're going. And the usual thing is like, well, if no one says anything, I assume you will understand everything. So I'll just go on. And, you know, what of course happens is most people sitting there going, uh, I have no idea what the professor is talking about. But on, on the Zoom, they don't care as much. And so they're like, you know, go back. Nope, I still didn't understand it. Explain it again. And they kind of, they set the pace for me. And it also means that if they don't say anything, I can really trust they do understand this bit. So I keep going. So I love it. It's much more interactive, much more, much more a feel for it. And what we're doing in the, the coming semester is we're going, um, any classes under 65 will be in person and any classes over will be online, which I think is perfect because of the smaller classes, it's nice to have the interaction. Um, and they've just introduced a rule for the University of Ottawa saying it's mandatory vaccination. You cannot even set foot on campus if you're not vaccinated, even if okay. you're a day one day. And so it's a really, it's a really neat idea. So I'm, I'm very pleased that that's taking off. Uh, so you're vaccinated? Yes, yes. I, I, I got vaccinated with the AstraZeneca vaccine number one and the Moderna vaccine number two. Um, because oh, okay. they were doing a lot of AstraZeneca's at first, and then they they kind of pulled that because of the blood clot thing, which I think is ridiculous. Because the, the I mean, sorry, here's 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 me going into areas that I study, right? So yep. I've been studying vaccines for a long time, uh, and I'm very interested in people's reactions to vaccines. Um, but you know, people people hear a rumor and they're kind of like they they change their whole lives based on it, right? And it's like, oh, I heard that the blood clots might happen from AstraZeneca. It's like, yes, but what are the actual chances of that? Mm. And my friend calculated, and he said, literally, you are twice as likely to be struck by lightning as you are to get a blood clot from the AstraZeneca vaccine. Like it is so unlikely, right? And so. You know, people are like, oh, I don't want that vaccine. And so the problem is the public health people say, well, if people are hesitant to get a vaccine, we better like, you know, like not, not make that vaccine available or something. And so they pull yep. the vaccine. Like, this is ridiculous because you're giving into these tiny fears and, and you're, you, you know, instead of reassuring people that like, actually, you know, you're probably not going to, you know, get, <laughs> get a blood clot because the chances are incredibly remote. Also, if you don't like blood clots, you know what causes blood clots? COVID-19 causes blood clots yeah. a way higher percentage than the AstraZeneca vaccine. Well, that's the other thing here. AstraZeneca is one of the two main ones here in Australia. It's AstraZeneca mm. and Pfizer, and Pfizer isn't available. Um, so I actually got AstraZeneca my first dose two oh, days yeah. ago. Excellent. Um, and then, yeah, you wait the six weeks and get your second dose. 
but the same thing, I saw exactly what you just said. You're more likely to get uh, hit by lightning in Australia than you are to have an adverse effect from yeah. AstraZeneca. That's right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, people are not very good at calculating risks, and and so this is a very common human problem, right? Like people think, oh, I don't want a scary vaccine because I don't know anything about it, right? Even though it's been rigorously tested, and then they do things like they go and like drive a car or smoke a cigarette. Or- <laughs> like these are incredibly risky things you're doing. Like so much hmm. more risky, like, like something like the order of like you know a thousand million times higher. <laughs> Be like, oh well, whatever. I do that every day, and it's like, yeah. And also, you know, so what? I, I mean, actually, one of my favorite statistics I think is about um, you know, on on what day are you most likely to be murdered, right? So people are very afraid of murder, right? You know, I don't want to get murdered and you know, stranger danger and all sorts of things. But actually, the day that you are most likely to get murdered is the day you are born, because the most likely person to murder you is your mother, because mothers sometimes murder their babies because they basically give birth in secret and then like kill the baby and so on. This happens incredibly rarely. It's very, very rare. It's just it happens slightly more than like any other kind of murder. <laughs> and so what it really tells you is you are not going to get murdered. <laughs> it doesn't happen basically, right? Or it happens so so infrequently that the chances are vanishingly small. And yet people worry enormously about these things. Whereas they don't worry about other things like, you know, driving a car or eating a hamburger or whatever. It's like, yeah. no, those things are going to kill you. Right? Yeah. <laughs> yes. And, and that's the other thing. Like you said, humans are terrible at weighing up uh, the risks that they take every day. And it's the risk versus the reward for the rest of society as well. So, yes, exactly. I, I mean, one of the interesting things I find about like sort of in the whole vaccine debates is, is this, you know, it's the social contract we live in, right? It's like, you know, we agree to give up some of our freedoms for a nice society to live in. And, you know, things like, you know, I can't go into a restaurant without a shirt on, right? It's just like, I just can't do that. And if I did that, I would actually probably go to jail, you know, yep. and, or find or whatever. Like there are, there are actually consequences for doing that. And so we just all agree not to do this. And it's like, we could, I suppose, you know, have protests and so on. And, you know, and sometimes you can kind of change the laws this way, but very rarely, right? And a vaccine is another one. And there's certainly been times in history where they've actually just mandated vaccines. Uh, this is how we eradicated smallpox. Um, the last holdouts in the world for, for the smallpox uh, vaccine, it was in the former Yugoslavia. They sent in helicopters and they forced vaccinated whole villages. And people were like, we don't want this. And they're like, well, too bad, you're getting it. And it was an unquestionably good thing for the world. Because of that, they eradicated smallpox. Mm. And smallpox used to kill like, you know, seven of your 10 children, right? It was like, you know, the reason you had so many children is because most of them are going to die of smallpox. And we eradicated that thing from the planet. It's one of the only two diseases we've eradicated. That was one of the best things we've ever done. Like, vaccines are probably the, the pinnacle of human achievement, in fact. And, you know, people have always hated vaccines, though. They've hated them from day one. The first anti-vaxxers were doctors because doctors were like, we don't want vaccines. Our livelihood is the sick. We don't want to cure the sick, so stop doing that. And they were really against vaccines. So they had to be brought on side. And that took like a generation to do. And then there were like huge protests against the smallpox vaccine in like, you know, the 1900s and stuff. Uh, There was all the, like, you know, the myths that we get about like, you know, vaccines and autism, which is entirely untrue. They had myths in the 1800s about like vaccines and um, because, you know, vaccine comes from the word which is like French for cow, uh, because the, the original vaccine against smallpox was from cowpox. And they, they what they discovered was that milkmaids were immune to smallpox. And milkmaids had this beautiful clear skin because they were catching cowpox all the time, which is basically a benign disease. And that disease protected you from smallpox. So everyone else had these, these you know, 
terrible, you know, kind of acne-like scars, except for these beautiful milkmaids. And they said, well, wait a minute, why don't we just give other people this, this cowpox? And so they did, and that's how they invented the vaccine. And then in the 1800s, there were political cartoons basically like drawing half-human, half-cow hybrids because they thought that's what people would be giving birth to because of the vaccine. And you think, well, this is so ridiculous. Like, it's so <laughs> nonsensical. You're not going to turn into half a cow because you got a vaccine, right, because you got a bit of cowpox, right? And yet this is what the autism debates are, right? This is going to look just as ridiculous in, in a hundred years. Um, but we get so caught up with these things. And, you know, it's, it's, I mean, it's fascinating from an academic point of view. It's also incredibly frustrating from a public health point mm. of view. And, and I think with social media now too, like, you know, the, the, the merest, tiniest rumor of an idea can be propagated and just gather steam. And it's really hard to counteract those things. Yeah, definitely. I think um, as someone who's studied both health and fitness and history, this is an insane time to be living right now, knowing that number one, the health aspects of everything. And number two, this is a moment in history that will be spoken about, like you said, for a hundred years. Um, exactly. But it, it's a very interesting thing that's going on. Yeah. I mean, in uh, 2018, 2019, I was traveling for 16 months and I was on sabbatical and I was in like so many different develop, developing countries. And I, I was, I was living in Africa for a while and I was, I was all over the world. Um, and, and what I, what I basically did was I lived in places that don't have the kind of Western infrastructure. Uh, and it was fascinating to me to come back and I came back like before the pandemic, but it was like, you know, a lot of people saying like, Oh, you know, like there's Trump and there's all kinds of things. And like, you know, things are really going downhill. And I was like, you don't know how good you have it. Like Western society is amazing. Like it's got its problems for sure, but it is incredible. And what I think sort of happened was like, you know, like in world war two, we all had to kind of like pitch in together. And, you know, when you have this giant world war and everybody's fighting and contributing to the war effort and so on after world war two, you get this incredible kind of like idea of like we have to help each other and they invent like socialized medicine and stuff like that and and you know special safety nets and things that really protected people and and helped like the the, the poor and the sick and so on to like not fail at life um, because we had all these things and these were brilliant amazing inventions and then for kind of a generation or so we had these and then you kind of hit the 80s and then people say like well nothing bad has been happening lately everything seems good why are we paying all this money to like have a great life let's stop doing that and they start to chip away at it and they chip away slowly but they chip away in a generational way at the same time they chip away at the media and it's sort of like you know you, you end up with this point where we are now where basically we before covid we hadn't had anything bad happening in western societies for like you know, 70 years, say, right? Yep. Like we had 9-11 happen, but that was a one-off, one-time thing. We had no sustained attack on society for such a long time. So people have, you know, they revert to a very individualistic mindset. It's like, well, I just care about me and maybe my, my direct family or whatever, because that's all there is. Whereas I think like, you know, World War II era, it was like, no, I have to care about everyone because it's clear that we're all in it together. And COVID has been this rude awakening to show we are actually all in it together. Like what happens in China really affects me, you know, in Canada and you in Australia yep. and yep. so on. And I was just reading about, you know, the next variant is like the Lambda uh, variant, which is, you know, coming out of Peru. And it's because Peru doesn't have good enough, like, you know, like COVID controls. We are going to suffer with a, a new variant that is not susceptible to the vaccine. So it's like, if we can vaccinate fast enough, we can stop this with the Delta one before we get to the Lambda one. But if we don't, we're totally screwed again. And it's like, yeah. we are yeah. all in this global village together and we have to help each other. And if COVID goes on for five, 10 years, we're going to learn this lesson. We will learn it painfully and slowly and awfully, but we will learn it. And if it ends now, you know, ish, then we'll say, oh, okay, well, we survived that. And we may not learn, we'll learn some lessons, but not, not all of them. But I think it's also a ticking time bomb until we get an actually bad epidemic because COVID is not bad. COVID is 
as diseases go, it's it's pretty mild. Like my um, my colleague and I were talking when it first came and we said like, oh, should we start studying this new disease? And she's like, well, it's pretty boring, isn't it? And I'm like, it is boring. It's totally boring. It's such a textbook disease. There's nothing really interesting about it except for its its degree of spread. Like it, the fact yep. that it spread so far, that's interesting because we haven't seen a global pandemic in a hundred years. Um, but otherwise there's nothing quirky about it. And what that means is we know exactly what to do about it. All the tried and true techniques of like social distancing and masks and quarantine and so on, vaccines, they all work. Whereas like, heaven help us if we get an actually scary disease that has a high case fatality rate and a high spread and those things don't work, like then we're in serious trouble. So my hope is that we will learn some lessons from COVID that will actually prepare us for the actual real pandemic that's probably coming in the future. And these things are going to come because, you know, climate change, we are changing our environment so much. This is kind of like, you know, the new normal, we're going to be hitting these massive things like again and again. I mean, you know, COVID comes out of deforestation and, and you know, this is like, I mean, we've had diseases basically as long as we've had agriculture because diseases always jump from animals. Yep. And so yep. we didn't used to have too many diseases and they all kind of popped up around the agricultural times. And, and most, about 60% of diseases jump from animals to humans. Um, that's how we get most of our diseases. So it's kind of like, okay, well, if we force ourselves into different and newer like interactions with animals that we've not been in contact with because those animals are forced to find food in cities rather than in jungles, then what do you think is going to happen? We're going to get even more scary diseases coming. And are we slowing this down? Have we learned our lesson? We have not. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> yeah, that's one thing uh, in Sydney. There, Obviously, we've been pretty lucky. We had the first lockdown, but then we had six months of life going back to normal. And I think mm-hmm. that was, and then when we got this lockdown again, everyone felt so hard hit, but we don't realise how lucky we were that we didn't have just the 18 months straight of lockdown. We got that um, 12 months in the middle where we were able to go back to semi-normal, which we were quite lucky. Yeah, it was it was quite amazing actually to watch because my 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 Facebook is kind of like fifty percent Australia and fifty percent Canada, and it was completely bifurcated. Like all of Canada is like, oh my god, these lockdowns will never end, you know. And we we were basically in lockdown for like six months of twenty twenty one. Like we basically everybody went a bit crazy at Christmas when they shouldn't have, and they and they did, and we paid the price for a good six months. And so finally, when like you know we're coming out a bit. It was happened to be when the vaccines are available. So Canada went crazy for vaccines because we are just sick of this thing. We're like, get us out of this. And if the vaccine gets us out, we'll take it. So we've had incredible uptake rates, which has been great. Whereas in Australia, it was like, la, 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 we're going about a business. We're having yeah. like, concerts and so on. And you're like, this is incredible to watch. And I'm telling people, and they're like, oh, well, it's because Australia is an island. I'm like, that is not why. Also, it's a freaking big island. Like people think Australia is like this tiny island. I was like, that's not that's not the reason. The reason is actually because people listen to their public health officials in Australia way more than they do in North America, say. And and also, if you look at somewhere like Vietnam, which had also like very, very low rates because they they learn lessons from SARS and they acted quickly and so on. And, and the, the thing about diseases is there's a window of opportunity for every disease. And if you can act fast enough and hard enough in that window, you can stop it, all right? And, you know, Australia basically did that. New Zealand did that very well. Um, the rest of us didn't. And we had months of warning and, you know, the first couple of months of 2020 and we didn't do anything about it. And so we're paying the price enormously for that. <laughs> and so, we, you know, I, I always say you can either have a, a fence at the top of the cliff or you can have an ambulance at the bottom of the cliff. You probably prefer the fence, but in practice, we mostly just live on the ambulance side. <laughs> uh, so are you completely out of lockdown now at the moment? Uh, yeah, yes. So, so things have opened up. I suspect we're going back in in a couple of months uh, because new variants are coming. But yeah, we we finally, finally got things down to, to almost zero. Um, so that was a lot of hard work and basically through the vaccine. Um, yep. And also, I mean, it's quite seasonal here because the, the, the weather is quite extreme. So, um, you know, everybody's outside now in the summer and that's great. Uh, but that's because it's like, you know, 
30, 35 degrees um, in the winter when it's minus 40, sometimes worse in Ottawa, you cannot be outside. Like you, you literally die if you do that. So, so that's a real challenge for, for a lot of things. Yeah, no, it definitely would be. Uh, at the beginning of the episode, you mentioned that you recently transitioned and I've seen that you've won a 2021 Diversity, Equity and Inclusion Award at the university. Yes. Yes. I, I was actually the, the first University of Ottawa employee to transition, uh, which I mean, quite a few students have. I mean, I think in some ways it's quite a, quite a generational thing. So I, I actually, I know a lot of trans people who are, who are quite young. Um, and, and my thinking about these things is like, if you're like a, if you're like a 10 on the scale, like you're, you're absolutely burning with it you, it, you basically can't not do it, right? If you're like, you know, like, oh my God, I, I'm clearly the, in the wrong gender, I've got to transition. And I think that's the same true same thing if you're like, you know, if you're, if you're gay, you're like, you know, if you're a 10 out of 10, like, you know, gay man, you're like, I just got to come out of the closet. Like, I just got to live my truth and so on. But if you're like a four or a five on the scale, like you can like, well, I could do it or I could not, but it's a lot of hassle to do it. Maybe I won't. And that's kind of where I was. I was like, I always knew that this was kind of in me, but I was like, oh, that sounds like a real hassle. I don't want to deal with all the crap of society and so on. And I always used to say like, I'm not going to transition unless society makes it easier. And then what happened was basically society made it easier. And I was like, actually, actually, maybe I will do this after all. And so it wasn't quite as kind of burning inside me. And suddenly other people I've talked to have said like, oh yeah, they, they really knew from the beginning. A lot of people do it as teenagers and so on. And of course, then you're fighting like parents and you know school systems and lots of things. On the other hand, when you do it in your forties, like I did, you have a whole history with your old name. So that's why I'm not shy about mentioning my old name because yep. I have, you know, 19 books with that name on it, <laughs> like, you know, a hundred academic publications, there's no escaping it. So I'm like, ah, oh, whatever. I just, you know, but my, my, my line is sort of like, there's a line in the sand in October, 2020. So anything before that, you can refer to me as Robert historically and afterwards I'm Stacy. And so that, that kind of works out for me quite nicely. Um, but yeah, and, and so um, I had to I had to kind of figure out all the stuff to do. Um, I didn't do anything legally, um, partly because I didn't have time. I, I transitioned in October, and I wanted everything done by January 11th because that was the first day that they were having um, classes start in the winter. And so I was like, well, I wasn't teaching in the fall, so I was kind of like, right, I need to be ready for that. And I wanted the university to do everything on the outside. Like, like they were like, oh, we want you to change your your pay stub because that goes to your bank. I'm like, that I don't care about because that's just for me to see. Mm. What I care about is if somebody Googles, you know, I want to take this course in calculus, they need to see my new name, not my old name. When they get an email from me, they need to see the right name. So there's lots of stuff like that that had to be done. And they'd never done any of it before. So we had to figure everything out from scratch. But the nice thing about being in your 40s is you're very confident. You've figured out a lot of things about life. And so I was like, oh, great. Yeah, sure. Use me as a guinea pig. You know, I'm a very privileged person. I'm a tenured professor. I'm like, yeah. And I, and I also convinced them, I think, by just saying, look, I'm the first, but I will not be the last. There yeah. will be a tsunami of people coming behind me. And, you know, you're going to have to be ready. So let's figure it out now. And, and to their credit, they were very much like, oh, yeah, okay. When you put it like that, we should do something about this. Um, and then they tried to hide behind the students a bit. They said, oh, but, you know, sure, maybe you have this weird thing. But like, you know, but what about the students? You know, what about the, what about the children? Oh, no. And I was like, I'm just going to stop you right there. No one under 35 is going to have a problem with this. So if you have a problem, you need to own that. And they sort of were like, oh, um, uh, <laughs> sort of had nowhere to hide. <laughs> and sure enough, I've had, I had zero problems with my students. And, you know. Yes. I mean, it's funny because occasionally they would misgender me and then they would correct each other. And I'm like, oh, this is, this is great. It solves itself. Um, so that's been, that's been perfectly fine. And even, you know, sometimes you get bad, bad, you know, ratings or whatever for classes, mostly because people hate math and like, oh, you know, I hated this course, hated, but they did not 
they're not misgendering me on that. And I'm like, oh, you know, hate me as your math prof all you <laughs> like, but yeah, don't misgender me. And they're, and they're not. And so, you know, like that, that's all great. So I, I must say for me, it's been an incredibly smooth process. I, I, in a way, can't believe how easy it was and also how much fun I've been having since. And that no one told me, no one told me it'd be a good time. I thought, oh my God, it's going to be stressful and, and awful. I was like, no, it's great. I love it. <laughs> so this is really cool. And I, I just feel much more confident in myself. Um, which I already was before, actually. It was quite funny. I, I thought, oh, I'm one of the most confident people I know. And, and I've done a lot of therapy and stuff that was kind of hard earned. Um, but when I transitioned, I was like, oh, I really know how to own this. Um, and COVID actually helped a lot because I was I was learning how to do stuff without worrying about walking into a crowded bar or something. I was like, you know, I'm walking down the street with my dog trying to figure out how do I actually walk and, you know, let me do the sachet and kind of, you know, getting all this stuff right. And I'm like, there's no one here. There's no one on the street to look at me because we're on lockdown. So great. Okay. I can, you know, learn this stuff on my own. And I talked to other trans people and they basically said the same thing that, oh yeah, thank God for COVID. This has been the biggest boon for us. And I'm like, oh, I really like that there's some people for whom this has been a good time. I'm yeah. I'm so happy for that because it's been so awful for so many people. But like, yeah, a lot of trans people are like, no, this is great. I'm, you know, I don't want to be in a crowded space and I don't want to be out and trying to navigate bathrooms in a shopping mall or something. Yeah. And so I, I, I'm more bullshit about it. I'm like, you know, I'll bring it on. Like, you know, this will be fine. Actually, I was in, I was in the women's bathroom the other day and, and somebody, I walked into the stall and somebody knocked on the, the door and I was like, oh my God, here we go. And they're like, excuse me, excuse me. And I'm like, oh, here we go, here we go. Somebody is challenging me. And it turned out they wanted toilet paper from the next stall. Like, <laughs> pass them under the thing. And I was like, I didn't know this actually happened. I saw this in a Seinfeld episode, but I didn't know it was real. I'm like, oh, and I talked to my few more friends. Like, oh yeah, that happens all the time. I'm like, right. Because men don't talk to each other in the bathroom, but women do. <laughs> and then I was like, oh, but if I, I, I was sort of like, oh, sure. And I was kind of like, what do you want? But I'm like, oh, I'm going to sound so male when I say it. I was like, oh, this, this is going to be weird. And it was totally fine. And I was like, oh, right. Okay. This is cool. Yeah, that's funny. Um, like you said, you're the first, but you definitely won't be the last. Uh, it's pretty awesome to be a leading example for other LGBTQ uh, in all industries. Yes, yes, definitely. And um, I, I'm someone who's very much like, I'm just going to own who I am. Um, uh, so, so I'm polyamorous. Um, I'm, you know, bisexual. Nowadays, I say more pansexual. Uh, you know, I'm trans. I'm you know, vegan. I, I feel like I have all these things. I, I, when I came out as trans to my, my brother, uh, he was like, well, of all the weird things you've done, this is not the weirdest. He's like, at least I know this one. I've heard of this one. And he's like, oh, the God, the vegan, the polyamory, the whatever. You know, I was like, that's hilarious. Like, and also, he's not wrong. <laughs> Yeah, so for me, in some ways, it kind of feels like a fairly minor thing, even though it's probably the most visible thing now. Yeah, um, you know, it's the kind of thing where I mean, I, I think I visibly I passed pretty well. Partly, actually, being vegan has kept my youthful looks, um, and also like it's you know, I, I think I always had a pretty femme look. Anyway, I was always like a pretty femme guy. I had long hair and everything. So a lot of people don't clock that I'm trans. I think until I start speaking, and then they're like, "Oh, wait, what?" And they do a double take or something. So I, I really like that. Not that you need to pass to be trans, but I, you know, something it's it's quite nice to have. Um, so, but I also was like, I'm never going to get my voice right. I, I was like, I could do voice training, but that sounds like a lot of hard work. I'm not going to even bother. So I'm just going to own being trans. And I was like, yep. I perfectly know how to do that. And, you know, it's going to be totally, totally, totally great. And I feel like, you know, if you want to challenge me, okay, well, bring it on. We'll, we'll sort that out. Yeah, you definitely won't have a problem with that. Exactly. Yeah. Um, <laughs> now, you've been pretty open about sharing your experiences. You also did a talk, uh, Teaching While Trans. Yes. Yeah. I, I was inadvertently voted chair of the education committee for, for the Society of Mathematical Biology because like an idiot, they said, oh, we just want someone to put their name on the ballot just so we have some more names. And I was like, oh, sure, I can put my name down. So 
stupidly I got voted in I was like oh my god I'm chair of this committee and you have to like organize this this mini symposium and I was like I don't do education as a topic I like I teach like everyone else does but I was like I don't study it and so I actually like I gathered a bunch of people but I was like I should do one myself and I, I had an empty slot so I was like all right and and I'd seen someone give a really great talk about like being a professor and being black and I, it was such an inspirational talk and I thought maybe I could do something like he did and I'll do that for the I'll do the trans version basically and so I just was like let me just basically write down all my experiences and I was like, this seems a bit ordinary to me because I was just talking about, you know, some of the things I've just talked to you about, like, you know, just yep. what they've been doing and how it works and how to navigate and so on. But people were totally fascinated. They're like, oh my God, because they didn't know any of this stuff. Because I think like university staff tends to be like small C conservative. Like, like there's not a lot of variation going on. And I think, you know, because people would always, you know, I turned up and people was like, oh, your wife this, your wife that. I was like, I'm not married. Like I have a long-term partner, but she's one of my partners. And also like, we're not married. We're never getting married. That's just not our thing. You know, <laughs> it's just like, well, of course you have this woman, therefore she must be your wife. Like they just can't think outside their box. And then when I brought different people to like the, you know, the, the Christmas parties or whatever, they, they kind of were like, we don't know how to deal with any of this. And so, you know, I was just like, all right, obviously my stuff is a bit out of the box. So you know, I'll just, I'll just keep being out of the box. Um, but yeah, they, they were very big on diversity. Um, and so they actually they had three diversity awards from this conference. And so I won one of them. But I'm very proud to say that one of my people won another one because um, I, I literally was an inspiration to somebody who approached me and they said, yeah, I'm actually non-binary and I, I've you know, haven't told anyone in the academy yet, but, you know, like, I think I'm going to like be more, you know, out about that. And so I said, look, I've got this spot in the education symposium. Do you want to, you know, do you, do you do anything like that? And I said, oh yeah, I do like high school outreach stuff. And so they gave their talk, which was honestly stupendous and they won as well. And I'm like, oh, amazing. So I, I feel very proud that like, you know, this, this the, kind of the word is spreading and like, you know, people are being much more like, I, I guess, safe to, to be who they are, because I feel like the more that we do this, the more it normalizes stuff. And then you, you see this sort of generational change coming Coming through very rapidly which i think is just amazing yeah i definitely think that can only be boosted by people like yourself sharing their experiences and being so open about it i think that's pretty awesome yeah i mean i mean they did a study with like you know how did how did gay marriage accelerate in and especially in the us right and, and but it did like in a lot of western countries and what kind of caused it to do that and they said that the us it was two things it was the tv show will and grace which just presented <laughs> like you know, a gay man just living a life it wasn't a, it wasn't yeah a gay show. it was just a gay guy as a central character which is a key thing um and the other thing was it was all the people coming out they basically just started coming out and, you know, it sort of meant everybody went, oh, yeah, I've got a cousin who's gay. You know, like yep. everyone knew someone. And just that sheer numbers, they suddenly went, you know what, actually, so what if they get married? Like, it's sort of like it was just critical mass. And so, you know, like critical mass, you know, it takes a long time to get there. But when you get there, it's incredibly powerful. And what I absolutely love is seeing people who are, you know, like much younger, just have no problems with like people living their identities and and so you know I, I sometimes date people who are quite a bit younger partly because they're more in, in sync with my, my style and so you know I've talked to young trans people or something and and I'll say I'll explain something they don't know anything about like polyamory and I'll be like oh yes you know I have multiple partners or whatever and they'll be like oh all right and they're just totally fine with it whereas I feel like people my age were like wait what how how can you have more than one partner how can you love more than one person it's like do you love both parents? <laughs> do you love your children? Like, you know, you, you actually do it all the time. You just don't do it in romantic relationships. That's that's the odd one out, right? But there's no reason you, you don't have to. And so, you know, and but whereas I find like, you know, younger people are like, oh, okay, yeah, sure. It's quite reasonable, you know? And, and, and I feel like things like, you know, explaining that there's not just two genders, like people are like, oh yeah, no problem if they're like under 35. Whereas like people my age are like, wait, what? You're blowing my mind. How can this be, you know? <laughs> and so I'm, I'm feeling very, very hopeful for the future because I think this is, this is excellent to see this stuff coming through. Yeah, it's definitely more a generational acceptance coming through, uh, which is pretty, pretty good. 
and we're lucky that that's just going to continue rolling over into more different things. So that's quite good. Um, now, I think we're going to wrap it up there, Stacey. Uh, like I said, I really appreciate you being on the show and sharing your experiences from veganism to your transition and everything in between. I really appreciate that. Oh, it's, it's been very wonderful having like, like such a great chance to kind of like, you know, extemporize about all these, all these fun things I do in my life. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I loved having the chat and I'm sure the listeners will love listening. So I really appreciate that. And thank you for listening to episode four of Talking Hit with Joel Pamplin. Uh, leave a like, review or subscribe. And don't forget to find us on Instagram at Talking Hit. That's hit with two eyes. And don't forget we're on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and SoundCloud. Until next time, keep talking hit.